welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And we have a fun... We were going to think of a new name... For a history episode, because that sounds like you're just stuck in high school history class. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully this is a little you're more entertaining being, You're being homeschooled by the Overcrest podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you could do, that could be it. You'd be getting schooled. The schooled uh, episode. That, well, that's even further into what we don't want it to seem True. like. Because it's a lot of fun, and I really enjoy hearing about some of the, uh, especially the obscure stuff. Fun, which I think, fantastic which history I think episodes. Fantastic. I thought Overcrest Rewind would be pretty good. We tried that. Or, or that reverse. was the news. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got a fun one for you today. We do. Um, this is a... It's fairly obscure. It's very obscure. It's, there's only of one or two of these vehicles that were ever made. One. one. Okay, one. This was, is one of one, Chris. <laughs> I don't think you know much about this story. <laughs> it's very rare. Does it have a VIN number? I wonder nope, if it has a VIN it number. It does not. Not street legal. I also want to talk a little bit about, you know, everybody's obviously quarantined and doing their self-distancing or whatever crap they're doing. And as a car guy, <laughs> it's uh, it's kind of, we, we have some ideas of some stuff you should do. Right, but before we because, get to that, what have you got for us? Yeah, so before we get into that, let's talk about our sponsor, Worth USA. Worth is a family-owned global company that's been in operation since 1945. They offer high-quality, professional-grade shop supplies and tools with the industry-leading customer service. Chris knows this all too well, as he's been using a lot of those products have. on his car. They also just launched their world-class hand tool line to the U.S. market, and these are German-made tools with a lifetime warranty. So head over to worthusa.com to check out all of their awesome products. So I've been getting messages, basically people saying, you know, usually car show season is right around the corner, and you have that to look forward to. But now with social distancing and self-quarantining enacted, that's not going to be a thing. I have... A great way to socially distance yourself from other people. What's that? Get in your car uh-huh. and drive somewhere. <laughs> Take you the can, car. You can get a couple buddies together. Um, I might do a, you know, three or four of my, us guys will maybe go and do a trip of, I was thinking about doing like a Lake Superior tour. That'd be cool. You know, go around the loop, go through, you know, Detroit and come back down and, you know, just bring. Even less than that. I mean, like, because when you are looking forward to a car show, that's just an afternoon. Yeah. So in the like in the cities here, you know, it'd be great is just get some guys together and go drive around Lake Minnetonka or something. Yeah. Just, like you can do smaller drives. It's got to be smaller. We want to make sure everybody's being safe and smart, but you don't you don't need to sit in a parking lot to enjoy your car. Yeah, that's it's I'm not encouraging everybody to get out and socialize with each other cuz that's probably not a good idea either. No. But it, it, it don't fret. As time goes on here, things will lighten up. We are going to miss out on a lot of the car show season. A lot of the, you know, obviously F1 is closed. Le yeah, Lamont Classic that I was going to go to probably not going to happen, which is really disappointing for me. Um Le Mans, 24 hour Lamont is I wonder if is any delayed. Of the vintage races are going to happen later in the summer. You don't, we don't know. But yeah. what's important is that I think that there's a couple of things you can do. Spend some time with your own car, you mm-hmm. know, whether that's cleaning it or detailing it or um, working on it, finding little projects, things that you've been there putting off. There was a off. meme, something about now us car guys have no excuse of not getting our project car done. Have you noticed how much I've been getting done on my car? Yeah, you have. I was, what are you doing? You, you say that like I've done nothing. <laughs> yeah, you have. <laughs> what do you have left to do on your I have to paint the bumpers and I want to do some more body work and I was thinking about dropping the trans to replace the synchro and never did that and I still have installed my other seat. I basically haven't done anything. Why? Because I've been working on house projects. Dude, that's super lame. You can I work know. on house projects anytime. It, it, you told me. What's that? 
you will never, ever have your car done by May, is what you told me. Oh, your car. Yeah. 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 Do you take it back? Well, it doesn't matter now, because we didn't bet anything. <laughs> <laughs> but do you take it back? Yeah, you'll probably get it done. I'll probably have it done. I'm ready to have that car pretty much ready to go to paint, I bet, within four days of working. Yeah, I can see I think that. I'm really, really, really it's close. It's just when you kept cutting into it and cutting into it more and you weren't in the <laughs> assembly phase, you were just kept finding more wrong with the car and had to cut more apart. I was like, oh, man. Yeah, it's just basically go the forever. hole just started getting deeper and deeper. But no, it looks deeper. really good. So you're making really good progress. So that's another good time is it's a buyer's market right now. Everybody's trying yeah. to sell stuff. And we were no- just looking on Craigslist. There's some cool cars you can buy. There was a 535i manual E28 for $3,000. Needs a yep. little bit of work. Needs a little bit of love. That'd be a great project. Um, there's 190Es all over the place. If you're into old Mercedes, those are really cheap. Find a, Maybe find that project that you were always looking for. Um, you know, if you can if you can afford and have some money put away, I don't want to encourage anybody to be, you know, irresponsible or anything like that. But now fi- we're in a financial crisis. Go spend all your money. <laughs> Stimulate the economy yeah, by buying by buying going. old Mercedes. That's the that's the way to do it. Hey, I think they're going to give away thousands of dollars to every family. Spend it on project cars. Boom. I love it. There you go. <laughs> Nothing else could make me happier. <laughs> all right, Chris, let's take a quick break and then we'll get into our history story. All right, Chris. I'm ready. Rear Admiral Richard Evelyn Byrd Jr. was, in a word, a badass. Well, it, do you get more middle names as you become more of a badass? <laughs> Is that kind of so. how it works? He's yeah, just... this guy definitely. So first of all, he came from a rather distinguished family, as you would assume if you're Richard Evelyn Byrd Jr., who happens to be a rear admiral. His uh, family, or he was born in 1888 in Winchester, Virginia. And his father served as a Speaker of the House in Virginia for a time. And his family were descendants of the first colonists of America, which is really cool. His ancestors were actually John Rolfe and his wife, Pocahontas. He can, tra- <laughs> he can trace his lineage back to Pocahontas. So can Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, he was also related to William Byrd II, who was the guy who actually established the Richmond Colony back in the day. So this guy has some lineage. And in addition, Richard's military career started young. He went from military institute to the Naval Academy right into the Navy. Right away, he received a silver life-saving medal for twice plunging fully clothed to the rescue of a sailor who had fallen overboard. Wait, the same same sailor? That's what I was wondering. <laughs> the same twice? sailor fell overboard? Was the same guy that fell over twice? Climbs up the ladder. He's got his underwear on. <laughs> puts his outfit back on. And Jimmy falls <laughs> off the boat the again. Jimmy? <laughs> he takes his clothes back get off. Get your shit together, Jimmy. Fucking, fucking A, Jimmy. You better get a medal after that. Damn, Jimmy. So, during World War I, One, then, he qualified as a naval aviator and received the Navy Commendation Medal, whatever that is. Uh, Then, on May 9th, 1926, Byrd and his naval buddy decided to fly to the North Pole. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now, I'm making light of that, but this would be the first flight to ever reach the northernmost part of the globe. The plane used was a Fokker trimotor. <laughs> Fokker. <laughs> it was a Fokker trimotor monoplane named Josephine Ford. What's a monoplane? Monoplane is basically like an aqua, not an aqua, uh, one of the like plane boats, you know, okay. where it's got the big hull. Okay, gotcha. Plane. Why is it called a monoplane though? 
What's the mono like singular? What is a what is mono monorail? <laughs> yeah, but what? <laughs> what is a what does it mean when it's a monoplane? I think because it, it only has the one like it itself is the pontoon, right? As oh, okay. I got what you're saying. Yeah. So it's got the little things on the wings, and then it's a boat plane, basically. That's what I said. Okay. Boat plane. Well, we I was thinking we are very descriptive here. <laughs> the boat plane. It's a boat plane. It's a boat plane. So it's the boat plane named the Josephine Ford. After the daughter of Ford Motor Company president, Edsel Ford, who actually financed this entire expedition. So the flight left from Norway and lasted So what you're saying is I should hit up Ford for the money I need to go to the Arctic Ocean. There you go. Hey, guys. I want to head on out. You guys funded this thing like 150 years. probably the wrong company to fund your deal. We need to get a new Ford Bronco and do it. Yeah, Ooh, I like that idea. Yeah, let's go. All right, so Edsel Ford financed the expedition. The flight left from Norway and lasted 16 hours, including the 13 minutes that they spent circling the North Pole. So they got there, and they're like, well, we came all this way, so let's circle around for a while. So they flew up there, so and they then just they're just there. they for a while, <laughs> and then came back. No Santa Claus. Huge disappointment oh, for his children, That's all they were I'm looking sure. for the whole time. <laughs> When Richard returned to the United States from the Arctic, he became a national hero. Congress actually passed a special act on December 21st, 1926, promoting him to the rank of commander and awarding both him and his co-pilot the Medal of Honor for just going to the North Pole. That's serious recommend or uh, what is it called? Accommodation. No, accommodation is where you stay when you're tired. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which he would have been. <laughs> recognition. Are you tired? <laughs> Here's the Medal of Honor. I think recognition is the commendation. Okay, that works too. Uh, <laughs> the next big challenge for aviation was, of course, crossing the Atlantic. So Richard had assembled a team to attempt the feat years before that pesky Charles Lindbergh, who we know actually did it. But unfortunately, the plane had a mechanical failure and crash landed shortly after takeoff. While him and his guys recovered, Lindbergh was the first, of course, to successfully cry, yeah, fly in across the, the Atlantic. Yeah, the spirit of St. Louis. That's right. However, Richard continued with his quest and on June 29th, 1927, set off. So this guy just is like, I want to do some dangerous shit. What has nobody else done yet? Yes. I need to do that. And then uh, Charles Lindbergh did it, but he's like, well, I, I'm still going to do it. I still got to do it, yeah. right? Uh, fun fact. He took on board with him mail from the U.S. Postal Service to demonstrate the practicality of the aircraft. Well, you can't lose the mail. I mean, if that it would have stuck. Yeah. So Richard and his crew arrived over France the next day. He and his crew were received as heroes. And Richard Byrd was invested as an officer of the French Legion of Honor by the French Prime Minister. They're like, oh, yes, Richard, you are so impressive. It's we are lot, going to make you Legion of Honor. It's a lot harder to do anything that impresses anybody these days. <laughs> I mean, it really it's hard is. hard to argue with. Imagine if I drove to the Arctic Ocean in 1926. I'd be a hero. Yeah. Roses would fall from the sky. There'd be a confetti oh, parade. Yeah. Now I get like six likes on Instagram and nobody gives a shit. <laughs> you know, it's a completely different thing. It's so hard to do something that hasn't been done before. That's very true. There's only two really unexplored places, the deep ocean and space. The final I mean, frontier. The final frontier. And it truly is. I don't know. It just seems like it's really hard to impress If we can anybody. figure out a way to get your 9-11 on the moon, that would be impressive. I'll talk to Elon and see what we can make happen. <laughs> so once Richard returned stateside, he was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross by the Secretary of the Navy. So how many awards does this guy have by now, Chris? He has 
the Distinguished Flying Cross. He has the French Legion of Honor. He has the Medal of Honor. He has some other thing from saving Jimmy in the water twice. You think his jacket is like too heavy to wear? I was going to think he's point? probably got custom made lapels to handle oh, yeah. all the, all handle the, all the, all the metal. Uh, in 1928, Richard Byrd set his sights on the next great conquest, Antarctica. So at this time, Antarctica was a very, very unfamiliar place, I imagine. People really didn't yeah. know much about it. Yeah, the only one down there was Shackleton with his adventure. when he. Oh, yeah, with the, the ship that went down yep. there, and then they all ate each other and yep. died? Yep. Yeah. Is that, yeah. Didn't they have a bunch of whiskey with them or scotch? Mm. I'm pretty sure that they found a ship down there that was full of whiskey and scotch. And oh, you know how expensive that scotch would be? It is. It's really, really, really Wait, expensive. you can still buy it? Yeah, you could Shackleton buy it. It was like, like $20,000 for a bottle <laughs> of the scotch. Now I want some Shackleton <laughs> scotch. <laughs> all right. So anyways, he's probably terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, Richard, he set his sights on Antarctica. His expedition, no less. Oh, his expedition consisted of no less than two ships and three airplanes. So he's probably a little better off than Shackleton. Uh, once he and his crew arrived, they established a base camp called Little America. This base was used for scientific expeditions by snowshoe, dog sled, snowmobile, and airplane. That's how you'd get to this base that they set up down there. It is Shackleton. I just looked it up. Shackleton's whiskey returned to Antarctic hut. I don't know what that means. 100-year-old crate of scotch whiskey found trapped in the Antarctic. That's pretty cool. Yeah, but can I buy it? You I want to drink it. Oh, uh, I don't know if you can buy it or not. I'll find out while you while you go to <laughs> No, pay attention, Chris. Okay. <laughs> All right, so they set up this little base there called Little America. And in fact, in order to increase the interest of youth in Arctic exploration, a 19-year-old American Boy Scout, Paul Allman Sipple, was chosen to accompany the expedition. So they have this big expedition going down there to set up this base, and they bring this little green horn little uh, Boy Scout guy. Yeah, why not? Yeah, Paul. Paul Allen. So interestingly enough, this Boy Scout would actually go on to earn his doctorate degree and was the only person other than Richard Byrd himself to participate in all five of his other Antarctic expeditions. So the kid's like, hey, Mr. Bird, this is really great. I think I'd like to come with you next time. Is yeah, that be all right? He's there every time. All right. As a result of his achievements, Richard Byrd was promoted to the rank of Rear Admiral by a special act of Congress on December 21st, 1929. He was only 41 years old at the time, making him the youngest admiral in the history of the United States Navy. As I said before, a badass. Yeah, this guy's pretty cool. Meanwhile, enter Thomas Charles Do you think Poulter. I guarantee this rear admiral dude would have been in a squirrel suit in today's day what? and age. This guy would, you know what a squirrel suit is, no, right? No, I don't. It's those things where you jump off a cliff and you open oh, up your arms. I, Chris, I was literally picturing like a three-piece suit made out of <laughs> squirrel skins. <laughs> I was like, is this some weird, like, status symbol I'm not aware of? What the hell? Well, it took 75 squirrels to make, the, <laughs> yeah. to make this hat. So, obviously, that guy's doing well. No, not a squirrel suit. The flying squirrel suit. Gotcha. Yeah, the one that makes more sense. I'm just saying the yeah. guy would probably be into extreme sports. Oh, He'd be jumping sure. out of helicopters with skis on. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. Um Anyways, switching gears <laughs> to Thomas Charles Poulter. Now, he was born on March 3rd, 1897 in Salem, Iowa, which, Chris, just to be clear, gets snow during the winter. I'm just saying that Where? this Thomas guy in Iowa, he should have known what he was doing because there's snow in Iowa. Right. 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 And more, corn. More on that later. Just want you to remember that. Okay. 
Anyways, Thomas became a physicist and began teaching at Iowa's Wesleyan College. And it was during this time that he started becoming interested in the Antarctic. You see, the bottom of the Earth offers a number of unique opportunities for scientists. Because Antarctica is absolutely untouched by human development, it is completely devoid of things that would normally hamper sensitive experiments. It's the perfect place for observing cosmic rays and various types of astronomy, since the dry, clear air means that telescopes in Antarctica can actually see the universe just as well as space telescopes. So the Hubble... Waste of money. Just go down to Antarctica. Same thing. Yeah, but then you're stuck there in Antarctica. <laughs> no, you're not going to get the coronavirus. True. But you are going to have a great telescope. So anyways, as mentioned, since humans haven't been meddling and digging in, it's the single best place on Earth to find meteorites as well. So there is a lot of reasons that scientists like Antarctica. And so this Thomas guy recognized this and began preparing for an Antarctic expedition. So how many people at this point have been down there? Do we know kind of there like were five, other expeditions five or six teams over the time? Yeah. So the Richard Bird guy, he was the first one to set up a, an actual base down there. Though, okay. That little America. Is he, is he from England or is he? No, no he's, he's, from, he's, okay, he's an yeah, American guy. Yeah. Remember, he's Pocahontas's descendant. That's right. <laughs> All right, so Thomas, he was so uh, gung-ho for this Antarctic expedition, he even hired one of his students at the college to prepare seismic and magnetic equipment and paid him 35 cents an hour, mind you. As luck would have it, Admiral Richard Byrd was preparing his second Antarctic mission to the South Pole and named Thomas as his second-in-command. The 1934 expedition was a success and saw the Admiral enduring five winter months alone operating an advanced forward base that became a meteorological station. So they're down there. He brings Thomas with him because he's this gung-ho scientist guy. Yeah. And he's like, all right, guys, we're at Little America, the main base that he set up on his previous expedition. He's like, I'm going to go further out, miles and miles out by myself and set up another base. And I'm going to stay there for five months by myself. Just just because I'm a because badass. I can. Just because I can. Yeah. So keep in mind that Thomas and the other crew members were still on the continent at the Little America base. After a while, however, the men noticed that the Admiral's radio transmissions were making less and less sense. Uh-oh. Alarmed, the men at the camp decided they needed to go check in on the Admiral. Is there any transcripts of these? I don't know. I'm sure there are, but I didn't find any. The guy's just commenting he's down to his last penthouse. He's, <laughs> <laughs> the pages are stuck together on all the other ones, yeah. and this is the last one that's left. So Please I don't know send how, help. I don't know how far away he was, but the men at the camp attempted to go to this advanced forward base, and the first two trips were failures due to darkness, snow, and mechanical troubles. Finally, Thomas and two other men arrived at advanced base where they found Bird approaching death from carbon monoxide poisoning. Oh, he's just in a little igloo or yeah, something. Yeah, he's and... just in a little like hut with a fire going, I assume, yeah. and just basically asphyxiating himself when over days at a time going a little crazy. Oh, that's one way to make the time pass, I guess. <laughs> hey, guys, <laughs> what I'm day is it? I'm carbon monoxide. <laughs> what, da- what day is it? Uh, upon returning to the States, Thomas reflected on the challenges of the expedition, witnessing the close brush of death and the frustrations of not being able to traverse the landscape. Thomas realized that future missions needed a vehicle. Future polar explorations required a purpose built vehicle impervious to extreme conditions and able to act as a mobile base of exploration. I guess I was going to say snowmobile, but that's probably not a mobile base of exploration. No, it? no, exactly not. Three years later, Chris, Thomas employed the help of the Armour Institute of Technology, 
which is a private research university in Chicago, Illinois. Do we know what else they made at this Armor Institute of Technology? I assume armored things, weapons. Yeah, and there's got to be some tanks. sort of. It, if they were trying to get money from the government, probably to do something like this, the Armored Institute for Technology is definitely a place that's getting government money. Yeah, I'm that gonna, makes. I'm going to go. They're a defense that. contractor. We'll yeah. say. So using Thomas's firsthand knowledge of the Arctic, because remember he's been there already on an expedition. They carefully analyzed and developed parameters for a truly massive vehicle. How massive? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. Okay. It's massive. <laughs> it took them... Your idea of massive or my idea of massive? It, it's massive. Okay. Two years later, Thomas presents the plans to officials in Washington. So it took them two years with this research firm to basically develop plans for the thing. With like 75 drafting tables, 150 slide rules, engineers everywhere, right. po pocket protectors. Oh, just all the pocket <laughs> protectors, Chris. The Snow Cruiser, as it was named, would cost... Hold on. The Snow Cruiser sounds like a station wagon that you would use to drive your family somewhere. <laughs> Doesn't it sound like the no, Snow that's, Cruiser? That's the hey, Vista honey, Cruiser. Hey, honey, let's take the Snow Cruiser, the Vista Cruiser, Snow Cruiser. Yeah. If you're in Minnesota, it would be the Snow Cruiser. You're right, it would be. Yeah. yeah, it does. All right, well, regardless, they called it the Snow Cruiser. I thought it was a cool name. Yeah, it's not bad. It would cost nearly $3 million in today's money. Just think of, well... Nothing designed today for $3 million is going to the, no vehicles are going to the Arctic, right? True. I mean, well, I guess that's probably not true. You can take a snowmobile. You can take those little snow crawler things. We've got to remember this is a time where none of that stuff really existed. If you look at snowmobiles from the 30s and 40s, they are junk. Yeah, they're terrible. Right? I mean, it's totally a different world. That Nothing for really sure. is functioning in that environment. So it was agreed that this would be built and then lent to the government for the expedition. So the government was on board with this. And you see, the U.S. was very interested in the Antarctic for strategic reasons. Right. The Germans had claimed a part of Antarctica already and were considering building a U-boat base there. Well, that's this is an area that's kind of no man's land right now because right. nothing can survive. There's no equipment that can survive. But if you think about it, it's kind of at the center of the world. It's just on a different side yeah, of it. Yeah, supposedly U-boats were actually intercepting all of these, um, like, shipments as they went around the Horn of Africa. Right, right, right. So they were like, yeah, right there, let's build a U-boat base. And then America is like, no, we need to also have a presence down there. Sure. Well, that I feel like that's what's going to happen with the moon. China's making a rush for the moon. We're making a rush for the moon. We're making a rush. You got to get your 9-11 up there. <laughs> we're making a rush. close it down. We're making a rush for Mars. I mean, the, the space is the next Antarctica and the next deep ocean. Well, it's the final frontier, Chris. Of course it is. Yes. So when Thomas finally got approved for his plans, he had less than six months to complete this entire revolutionary new vehicle. So three years or two years to make it. And yeah. then, hey, by the and way, then, we, we need this in six months. Because that's when the next expedition is going down there, is in six months. Sounds like a TV show on uh, Speed Channel. <laughs> yeah. All right, we got to build this hot rod, and we all got two days to do it, guys. <laughs> oh, no, but we found a problem. Exactly. <laughs> Drama. So it had to have a range of 5,000 miles that could carry a crew of Whoa, five wait, wait. people and supplies. 5,000-mile range as fueled. Yes. Wow. Yes. And carry five people and supplies for a year and function in the most extreme environment on the planet. Now, Thomas... That's a hefty bill. Think about that for a <laughs> that second. You a need to be able to drive 5,000 miles and take a crew for a year. Yeah. That's like a nuclear submarine. Essentially, yeah. Essentially, yeah. it is. So Thomas persuaded over 70 companies to donate lab space, materials, and equipment to the project. 
the okay, actual. Okay, so let's think about this. This is really, really important for two reasons, science and war. Right. And those are the two. Th- I mean, I think that um, in, when it comes down to it, they don't really care about science so much. This was really about war and defense. And uh, this was a different time, though, too, Chris. You have to remember, this is pre-war. I mean, it's the early 30s. Europe is in you said turmoil. 19, you said 1939. Yeah, we didn't enter the war until 41. No, but you bet your ass it was on their mind. Right. You know, we yeah, Europe is in turmoil. We're not there yet. We were playing the isolationism game at right. that point until, obviously, That's Pearl Harbor got bombed. Yes. But they were still planning. They oh, were still like, sure. eventually, we're probably going to have to get into this. Roosevelt was kind of a jerk off about it and didn't want to get into the war but i'm sure a lot of the defense uh defense guys the jsoc guys or whatever were, <laughs> i don't think it was jsoc back then <laughs> yeah well you know what i mean you know what i mean right it was the, it was yeah. the army the navy right um, was there an air force then i don't even know if there was an air force during world war ii there was was it, was it the official just before i thought okay okay and then you had the marines and everything those guys in charge of that stuff probably were making the big push for this yeah they probably had their finger on the pulse yeah so he has all these different companies coming on board and the actual construction of the vehicle was taken on by the pullman company in chicago now this pullman company they actually have archival photos of this thing being built which is really cool the vehicle needed to be built tested fully functioning by the time the expedition ships would be sailed from boston's naval yard in november so six months. That's that's they should have known better. Which another issue? Where is this being built? Chicago. Oh, great! Yeah, so they have to ship everything all the so way. So they have to go from Chicago to Boston with it once they get it finished and tested and done. Before we get to that, though, let's talk about they, the why snow they cruiser just, itself. Why did they just drive it? They could have just driven it. Could they? Have? <laughs> I don't know. No, so let's talk more about this vehicle itself. It's a four-wheeled behemoth. If I was ever to call anything a behemoth, this is a behemoth. Okay. Usually behemoths have more than four wheels. Uh, You're going to have to justify this to me. Well, it's a four-wheeled behemoth. It's 55 feet long, 20 feet wide, and 16 feet tall. And most cars are about, what, 14, 12, 14 feet, something like that? No. Long? No. Not even. Not we're, even. We're like a Cadillac Eldorado maybe is 12 feet. Right. right. So 55 feet is usually about a semi. So okay. think of like two semis side by side, and that's about the size of this thing. Jesus. Fully loaded, it weighed 75,000 pounds. So 30-something, 30 35, 37 tons. Right. Power was supplied by two diesel engines they were cummins inline six cylinders which drove generators that then ran electric motors in each of the four wheel hubs so this thing was actually technically a hybrid it's a prius it is a giant prius <laughs> the vehicle featured an onboard machine shop a photography dark room full galley and kitchen as well as living quarters for each of the five crew in the rear was storage space for fuel, food, and spare parts and tires. How many gallons of fuel do you need to run generators for 5,000 miles? <laughs> you need 2,500 gallons of diesel for powering itself, as well as an additional 1,000 gallons of airplane fuel. What do you, you need know, the, air- what do you the airplane fuel for? For the airplane that's on the top of it. <laughs> Oh, did I forget to mention this also has an okay. airplane on the roof? I'm just wondering, does it take off from the roof and land on the roof? No, I so mean, you'd have to be was, a hell of a pilot. <laughs> it's a five-passenger Beechcraft biplane that they strapped to the roof, and then it was basically winched down, and it had skis, so it'd take off. But how does it get back up there? 
the they just witch a bat like gun. Yeah, they, they just witch a okay. bat gun. Yeah, so it's basically a plane strapped to its back, and they use that to conduct like aerial searches. Yeah, and, recon. Exactly. Yeah, um, the antifreeze that cooled the engines was actually circulated through the radiators inboard to provide heat for the living quarters. Makes sense. Yeah, it's a genius. Such weight. I wouldn't call it genius. That's how every genius. That's how every genius. That's how the heat in every car works. (laughs) I wouldn't call it genius. True. Uh, All this weight required enormous structural strength, provided by a framework and steel skin, which was then coated in bright red paint to ensure the vehicle would be easily spotted from the aircraft. I can. I can right now start to picture this thing. Start to picture, but I can also picture the number one flaw with this vehicle. What? It is too heavy. No, I don't know what you're getting at. There's no No. possible way that this thing is going to be able to drive anywhere other than dirt and pavement. It's fine. No way. It's fine. Okay. The wheels featured independent hydraulic four-wheel steering and were mounted on hydraulic rams vertically, which were able to be retracted into housings in the machine where they could be heated by the engine's exhaust. So this was meant to prevent cracking of the tire's rubber compound at extreme temperatures. So basically, when they're done at night, they like it basically retracts its wheels up into its turtle shell. Have you ever seen, and heats them up? Have you ever seen the game Mousetrap? Yeah, which is just this overly it, complicated. Yeah, this yeah. is this sounds like the most overly complicated <laughs> boondoggle of a project. So the vehicle also featured super long front and rear overhangs on the body, which were designed to assist with crossing huge crevasses in the snow up to 50, 15 feet wide. So here's the process. This was something like a 57-step process from a mechanical standpoint. Okay. So basically, the vehicle, it would come up to a crevasse. The front wheels were then retracted, so then the nose would be on the snow, and it featured like grooves on the bottom of the chassis. Okay. And then the rear wheels would drive it, so it's basically sliding over the crevice until it got across, and then the front wheels would go back down, and the rear wheels would be retracted, and then it would pull itself, the front wheel drive, over the rest of the way. Sure it would. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Exactly. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That's exactly. Maybe we should get rid of the plane and have the Army Corps of Engineers come out with like these little bridges that go across no, instead. No, this is way more this entertaining. This is the stupidest thing <laughs> way ever. Better. This is way $3 better. million dollars on this piece of shit. What the hell, man? So the tires for such a massive thing were 10 feet tall, three feet wide, and weighed half a ton each. The tires. Okay. They were specially developed by Goodyear, which saw this as a perfect marketing opportunity. Hey, uh, excuse me. Uh, uh, Goodyear, I have, I need a, 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 a half a ton tire. <laughs> Do you think you can make this? Um, well, yes, sure. Hold on a second. <clears throat> Click. Hey, Bob, this idiot wants to design a half ton tire. How much are we going to charge this government asshole for this thing? We, yeah, come on. Do you know what they charged him? No. Tell me. Nothing. The tires were developed and made specifically for the project for no cost, but just so just happened how to, big was the lettering on the it tires? It was massive, Chris. <laughs> it just so happened to have a massive Goodyear script plastered on the side of each of them. Each tire was, in a sense, a rolling billboard. I bet. I mean, I imagine these tires just imagine the mold that they had to make. I mean, this was a serious, this was a big undertaking. I wonder if they kept it all the equipment to make the tire. Like if they could just make one of the tires, like let's, let's just, just, let's just, just make again. one. Yeah. So more on the tires later. 
Okay. More on the tires later, Chris. <laughs> the half-ton tires the half carrying the 75,000-pound thing <laughs> yes. over a crevasse <laughs> in the snow? <laughs> I don't know what you're so upset about. Is it doesn't like, make any sense. No, I can already fine. tell you right now that this is going to fail. Oh, it's fine. It's gonna, I weigh 160 pounds, <laughs> and I can't walk in the snow. Even with snowshoes, I sink in. No, it's fine. This thing was a huge success. Yeah. Huge well, you think success. you would do the math of the... the <laughs> surface area of the tire as it sits on the ground based mm-hmm. on the weight of the vehicle mm-hmm. and then you could do i guess they don't have a computer that they can just plug it in but <laughs> yeah, even plug into the algorithm but in my mind i go there's no way this thing isn't gonna just <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna go <laughs> what is the sound it makes <laughs> it's gonna go off the ship and that's it it's gonna go and it's gonna just bury itself in the snow and it's gonna be the it's gonna be the little america on the shore of the ocean it's right by cape horn by tierra del fuego you're gonna be able to see it from the other shore binoculars it's giant and red <laughs> Oh, man. (laughs) All right. So the snow cruiser at the time was a technological marvel that captured public imagination. Yeah, it's a bunch of dudes going, no way. (laughs) (laughs) It was featured in newspapers across the country and even had a special feature in a popular science edition. This is a thing that almost every guy that's a regular dude looked at that thing and went, Nope. <laughs> you know what I mean? The guys that sit on their porch and drink beers uh-huh. would, would see this thing. Nope. No way. That ain't going to work. Hey, Jerry, no. you think that thing's going to work? No way. No, that that's what work. Thomas is. Thomas is a regular guy. He's from the Midwest. He's yeah, with, from, all his, with all his medals and his knighting and everything else. No, no, no. That's Richard Bird. Remember, oh, Thomas the, is the scientist who made this thing. He's a scientist. You know that the engineers will just basically tell you that you're wrong. Even no. if he's remember, he grew up in Iowa. They have snow there. He knows snow. Yes, he went there's to the Arctic. There's no arrogant engineers from Iowa. That's never happened before. <laughs> no, he knows what he's doing. Okay. All right. So the men in charge of this project obviously knew this and took full advantage of the publicity. Oh, the, the tires. We're back to the tires. No, 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 not to the tires. Just the snow cruiser itself was such a marvel of technology. Oh, sure, sure. It's so amazing, and all the papers are writing about it, and it has its own issue of popular science. Was there- So the guys in charge are like, yes, let's take full advantage of all this publicity. And they put women in swimsuits right next to it and took pictures, because that's a, that's immediately what I would do if I had one of these. Mm, I didn't see any of those. Actually, Ooh. I did. I did. Yes, I, did. I knew it. It's got to exist. <laughs> you have to show that to me. Yeah, the Goodyear Tire ad. Yes, it's all of course. Of women. Yeah, yeah, of course. All right, so since the cruiser needed to to depart from the harbor in Boston rather than ship it via train or rail or those are the same things. (laughs) (laughs) Train, rail. I meant to say boat or rail. Why not just take the car? Yes, do it. Drive that thing. That's right. The snow cruiser drove over a thousand miles from Chicago to Boston. Also taking a detour through New York because why not? Did they they drive down like downtown New York? Yeah. Oh man! At a top ta- speed of thirty miles an hour. How many times did this thing break down? Uh, what? Why? Why would you assume that this thing broke why? down at least seven times? Why would you assume that in Ohio alone? <laughs> why? No, this is a technological marvel. Okay. Streets and roads were lined with thousands of people hoping to catch a glimpse of this technological marvel, Chris. So, what's the technical marvel of today? Hmm. Is there anything that can bring society together well, I suppose if, other than a cure for coronavirus? Yeah, what, is, what is the... If, what, if Elon Musk like drove one of his SpaceX rockets 
like through town. You can't drive rock. Cool. You can't drive rockets through town. Jimmy. Well, he should, and that would be cool. That would be a technological marvel. I wonder if he said, "Hey, the Tesla Roadster is done. I'm going to drive it across the country and come through your town." If that would, it still wouldn't be like this. I don't think so. I don't think anything like this happens anymore. No, not really. People are too self-absorbed, I think. It made sense, really, to use this as a publicity vehicle, not just for the vehicle and the expedition, but for, like, Americana as a whole, right? Sure. This so they some... wrapped it in some hideous... <laughs> <laughs> well, it was red, so that's kind of close. But no, as we talked about, I mean, the ra- war was raging over in Europe, and so this made sense to kind of bring people together over sure. something like this. However, as no one ever saw coming... There were some problems. Oh, no, really? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there were some problems that plagued the snow cruiser from the very start. Yeah, it didn't start, is my guess. No. (laughs) In Gary, Indiana, the public wanted a show. That is not where you want to break down. Although, I suppose in 1939, it's probably a little different. It's probably fine. Yeah, Gary, Indiana, people are there. They're lining the streets. You know what's crazy about Gary is it's this. I've never been. Okay, so Gary, Indiana is basically considered the armpit of America. All right, it's <laughs> it's right in between it's in between Indianapolis and Chicago, right on Lake Michigan. You go through there on your way to Detroit or anytime you're going uh out east. And all it is is when you go you drive through, it's billboards for lawyers mm-hmm. and strip clubs. That's nice. it. It's lawyers and strip clubs basically telling you the demographic of I'm gonna sue you or I'm gonna see you naked. One of those <laughs> one of those I'll two take things. The latter. But the thing is, is if you get off the freeway and you drive into Gary, it's this weird time capsule because it was oh, never really? gentrified. It's very poor. There's a lot of unemployment and there's a lot of poverty. Okay. But when you drive down the streets, it's the 60s. All the original signage, although it's weathered, there's, I mean, obviously you've got like the Dollar General and O'Reilly Auto Parts and all these other, but there's a lot of, you know, hotels and hardware stores and all these places that haven't been turned over yet just because the economy is so depressed. So it's really neat if you, if you got the balls, you know, get off the freeway (laughs) and and drive downtown Gary, you'll definitely feel out of place if you're. Yeah, you definitely. Yeah. I don't know that I would drive my 911 through there. It would feel a little weird, you know. I just it's it, there's a lot of poverty there. I don't know that I would really. We'll fit take in. the the old C10. Yeah, there you go. That'd yeah. be great. But it's a really cool place if you ever decide to just drive through there and and have a look. If well, you don't, I, if you don't mind the barrels on fire keeping people warm, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's pretty sketchy. Well, as we said back in the day, Gary Indiana was not a bad place. No, they had tons of ports right there, right in uh, North Gary. There's all kinds of, uh, on Lake Michigan, there's all kinds of docks and ports and industry. Interesting. It was, it was, it was booming. Yeah. So the people of Gary, Indiana, they saw this thing coming through and they're like, yeah, give us a show, right? So, so they did a break stand. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been sweet. Oh my God. <laughs> 10 foot tires burning out. <laughs> I can only imagine the smoke. <laughs> All right, so the cruiser wanted to show its capabilities in the Dunes State Park. So Thomas, of course, wanted to prove his beast could surmount the snowdrifts of Antarctica, but with no such snowdrifts around in Gary, Indiana, the rolling sand dunes served as a fill-in. What could go wrong? (laughs) It's just sand. When the big test arrived, crowds came to watch the technical marvel climb up the first sand dune. So how do you think word got around back then? Uh, like well, a, I think maybe a newspaper. Knew, everyone knew this thing was coming through yeah, town. How? how? Newspaper. The newspaper came out. Yeah. There's probably the guy with the little feather in his hat. Like, hey, yeah. come on, come on. Tomorrow. Well, uh, uh, the kids were on the street corner. Read all about it. Yeah, Read all exactly. About it. Read all about it. This thing's going to be here tomorrow. And then the word just everybody picked yeah, up their phone. And then the crowd's there and they're like, wait, we're going to go to the sand dunes with it. Yeah. And then. 
and then it got stuck. <laughs> Predictably, <laughs> because it weighs 30 and a half tons. Almost immediately, its heavy tires sank into the soft sand. Do we know how wide these tires are? They're three feet wide. Wow. Each of okay. them are three feet wide. Wow. The Goodyear tires spun uselessly for purchase, shooting fountains of sand into the air. The crowd waited silently as trucks were dispatched to hook chains up to the snow cruiser and yank it free from the sand. But as the crowd stood silent, everyone there was That's thinking the same nine hundred millimeter wide tire. So it's <laughs> like a it's like a twenty seven hundred by nine hundred R ten yep. or something like yeah. that. It's it's. That's a big tire. It's a big tire. Yeah, so they have tow trucks pulling this thing out of the sand dunes, and everyone's sitting there thinking, wait a minute, there's no tow trucks in Antarctica. Yeah, you think? Maybe they could just chain the... They got the plane. They can tow it out with the plane. (laughs) The plane will somehow (laughs) pull it. So that wasn't the end of the cruiser's very public mishaps, Chris. In Columbus City... I'm sure they were thinking, well, well, sand is way different than snow. Snow is compacts down. It'll be fine. Yeah. Uh, in Columbia City, the snow cruiser had to undergo body repairs after a negligent truck driver sideswiped it. Can you imagine some guy just... He didn't, How do you he not didn't, see it? This guy didn't read the paper, right? So he's coming down the road. What the? <laughs> How do you run into it? It's 55 feet long and, it only, and it's red. It's 10 foot tires. It only goes 30 miles an hour. Mm. In Fort Wayne, a fuel pump suddenly failed and had to be replaced. We're not even out of Indiana. Nope. Uh, the snow cruiser's most infamous debacle, though, happened in Lima, Ohio. As the cruiser rolled over a small bridge on the Lincoln Highway, the vehicle's steering suddenly failed, and the cruiser violently jerked to one side and off the bridge. Oh, no. 35 tons of rolling steel slid off the bridge, dropped a few feet, and landed in a muddy creek. Because oh, of the broken steering, it couldn't simply be driven or backed out. For three days, it remained stuck in the muck while hundreds of gawkers came by and took photos. Oh, no. <laughs> this guy, What's this guy's name again? Uh, Thomas. Thomas. Poor Thomas. I know. He's in like the hotel that's right on the river or whatever this creek. Exactly. He can look out his little window. <laughs> I, I imagine it. him like opening the drapes a little bit and going, oh, it's still there. <laughs> He's just waiting no. for hydraulic <laughs> pump parts or something to come in. Three days later, they get it you're on. Not, you're not towing this thing out of the... Out of a like something like well, that. Well, I think the wheel is like cockeyed too, you know? Oh, they gotta geez. wait until they can fix it. So three days later they get it out. And then it makes it twelve miles, and an oil line cracked and gushed amber oil all over the Lincoln Highway. And it had to be replaced again. By now, the snow cruiser was starting to get something of a reputation. Yeah, it's called the snow loser. <laughs> it became the national joke. Basically, if SNL had existed then, this would be the opener. Oh, big time. Right? So the cruiser finally made it to Boston, somehow. And the guy's like, thank God. Yes. They were <laughs> relieved. All right, we made it there. And we went, now off to hey, the most hey, foreboding Thomas, place he, on he, earth. Thomas gets up on his little shelf and he goes, all right, guys, I know it's been rough getting here, but guess what? Now that we have all the failures behind us, yeah, absolutely. we're going to be clear sailing. Yeah, this right? was beta testing. Exactly. So they basically had it loaded via crane onto a Coast Guard cutter sideways i don't okay it didn't fit this long way yeah, yeah, yeah. so they put it sideways and had to remove half the rear half of it and bolt it back on later okay so what do they have for spares do we know do they, they have... have two spare tires okay what about spare generator spare like they have motors? a full machine shop so they should be able to like fix whatever fix they need to things. okay i don't know why they didn't do that in the mud pit in ohio 
Yeah, they probably just didn't want to waste resources. That could be. So it actually took three months for the ship to make its way to its destination. And a lot of things of are whales. you fix it because you have to, and you don't fix it if you don't have to. Right. If exactly. that happens when you're in Antarctica, you probably try to fix it. But if you're in in four miles east of Gary, Indiana, where you just got stuck in the sand, you're like, you yeah, just, we'll just get a new we'll part. We'll just get a new part and exactly. put it in there. So this uh, snow cruiser is on this ship for three months on its way down to its destination at the Bay of Whales in Antarctica. Now, here's what I don't get, Chris. They loaded the cruiser onto the ship with a crane. Right. Did they not have a plan to unload it when they got it to the ice? Well, I figured they would just drive it up to the side of an iceberg and pull it off. Just find one that's the same height. Quote, Thomas ordered the construction of a makeshift wooden ramp to unload the vehicle. (laughs) (laughs) A makeshift wooden ramp for your 75,000 pound boondoggle of a vehicle. As the said 75,000 pounds rolled over the thick logs, one snapped and a tire dropped sharply, very nearly, very nearly taking the entire vehicle and crew into the deadly cold waters below. Why is the crew on this thing while it's being unloaded? <laughs> exactly. Jesus. So Poulter ordered everyone off, and then he himself, Thomas Poulter, got in the driver's seat. And he's like, "All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just." Gonna, I'm going to do this one myself the rest of the way. <laughs> he had to have known at this point. This is almost like, you know, you should break up with your girlfriend, but you're just kind of sticking it out <sighs> anyway. You're like, well, I don't wanna really want to break up with her. I don't really like being alone. So I'm just going to kind of stick this <laughs> well, out. No, it's more like I've taken it this far. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Oh, man. The sex is really good. Except in this thing, there's nothing no, good there's about no it. There's no redeeming heard. factors no. in, in the snow cruiser. Uh, so Poulter himself piloted the cruiser off the ramp and onto the Antarctic snow for the first time, greeted by a chorus of cheers and congratulations from the ship's crew as they looked on. Even with four-wheel drive, however, the cruiser's Goodyear tires spun and slipped in the snow and ice. It got off the ramps, and there it stopped. <sighs> of course, they didn't have chains. Did they have chains for the not tires? Not only did they not have chains, these Goodyear tires we've talked about, they didn't have tread. Are you kidding me? The bald, slick tires might have been two inches thick and as durable as steel, as Goodyear said, but without tread pattern, they only carved snow trenches. I don't understand. This is... How does this happen? The cruiser sank a full three feet before a heartbroken Thomas Poulter gave up and leaned back in the driver's seat. He knew that was it. It was over. That was it. Just... You know, I feel bad for the guy because this is, I really do feel for him. It's, I feel bad. I, feel, I don't even know what to say. I just feel Years bad for the guy. Years of the guy's Years life to get life, here. $3 million, someone else's money. Plus flump. the what million dollars. What was the sound we thought it was going to make? Flump. flump. More like, that was it. That was just, <laughs> the, uh, just imagine like probably a million dollars to get him there on the yeah. boat, everything else. So Thomas was a tenacious man and his spirits weren't completely cracked. He improvised. So he had the crew attach the cruiser's two spare tires that we mentioned to the front hub, doubling the contact area width to the snow surface. Sure. Then he had snow chains wrapped around the rear wheels. So here's, he did find some chains. Get. They, they have chains. Why didn't... They just put them on all four. I guess. Once again, he gassed up the cruiser. Call, I like how they're calling it the cruiser. The cruiser, now. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the engines roared, the tires dug in, and spun uselessly again. Oh, it didn't budge. It's too heavy. It's, it's too just heavy. too heavy. Thomas slammed the cruiser into reverse and tried to kind of jerk it loose, and suddenly it lurched backward with ease. 
Poulter drove the cruise around the Bay of Wales backwards <laughs> the entire time, turning and testing the red beast. Not good for your neck. So it must have just the weight balance, the way it was It was set the up. weight balance. The forward gears were basically useless, but it maintained decent traction in reverse somehow. And for two weeks, Thomas put the snow cruiser through its paces, testing and adjusting the cruiser's mechanics until he felt it trustworthy. The cruiser spent almost its entire working life in reverse gear. Even its longest voyage, consisting of a 100-mile trek circling the Little America base, was in reverse. The good news was, despite the lack of traction, the cruiser actually performed quite well for its intended purposes. For several months, the snow cruiser did exactly what it had been designed to do, conduct scientific explorations. The crew studied cosmic rays, extracted core samples from the ice, studied seismograph readings across the frozen wasteland, all in a comfortable room temperature. So, Chris, I kept asking myself, how did these guys, how did they think giant slicks would have worked in the Antarctic? That's the question. It's especially Goodyear. How did Goodyear screw these guys over right. so hard? What yeah. did they think? Well, this thing just weighs enough that it's not going to be an issue? So, I had to do a lot of digging. For this. Why didn't they do tank treads? I don't understand. Why right. did they opt for... They, this is after World War One. Like, they knew... They had tank technology. Why didn't they just put... Obviously, they, they can't put one big tread from front to back, but they could have put, like, a quad... Exactly. Could have had eight, eight wheels, and they could have little treads. He, he, this guy had been to Antarctic before. Like, he knew this area. He knew the conditions. And not only that, after the dismal failure on the sand dunes in Gary, Indiana, don't you think someone would have said, hey, uh, maybe maybe some tires with actual traction would be good for you? They you probably know? did. They call up, hey, Goodyear, we need some. Sorry, we're not giving you any more free tires. <laughs> well, needless to say, Goodyear suffered hugely from a publicity standpoint on this. I imagine. The whole time across the country, everyone's just laughing at the giant Goodyear tread or lack <laughs> of tread. So... They definitely regretted plastering their name on the side of the tires. So I, again, had to do some really some deep digging to try to figure out why they did this. Apparently, they had conducted tests in the sand dunes on Lake Michigan. That two years of basically planning with slide rules and everything, they did some testing out on sand dunes. The concept of balloon-like tires was observed on modified swamp vehicles. In the experiment, a large truck would sink into the sand up to its hubs and had to be towed out while the snow cruiser only sunk an inch or so. The snow cruiser sat upon the sand with a contact area only nine square feet per tire, and the hope had been this would keep the vehicle from sinking into the deep snow. But still, some treads would have been good. Right. You can have balloon tires with tread. I did include, also keep in mind, if you recall our interview with Nokian, they had just then started to develop snow tire technology around the same time. Yeah, but you don't even need snow tire technology. No, you, you just could have just had some blocks. knuckles on those. Exactly. When the expedition was over, the crew parked the cruiser near the Little America station, bundled it up as best they could, and pounded tall bamboo poles so it could be found even under deep snow. Unfortunately, the U.S. entry into World War II left the snow cruiser all but forgotten. Years later... In 1946, our friend Admiral Byrd returned to Little America for the purpose of establishing yet another research station. At this point, the thing's a write-off, I'm imagining. Oh, it was basically forgotten at this point. So World War II happens, and they're like, wait, that stupid thing? Yeah, we're not, forget about it, right? Uh, After the war, this Admiral Byrd came down again for establishing a research station and to train American troops in the hostile environment. Okay. Unlike his earlier expeditions, which involved less than 100 men in a single ship, Byrd now had almost 5,000 
thousand men and a navy at his disposal. Start digging, boys. <laughs> <laughs> Naturally, once Bird arrived, he sent out a crew of engineers to find the snow cruiser. It was right where they had left it, sprinkled with a thin layer of snow. After a quick battery charge, the cruiser's diesels puttered, chugged, and roared to life for the first time in half a decade. After a few minutes of checking the vehicle systems, the soldiers happily discovered everything was basically as it had been left and worked great. Although happy to confirm his friend's engineering skills, Admiral Byrd told them to close it up again. What are you going to do with it? Yeah, there's He was just curious, right? <laughs> Here, guys, go out in the most dangerous place in the world. Just find this thing, see find if it, it fires up. Find it, see if it fires up. All right, it fires up. Good, good. <laughs> I'm imagining it would be pretty tough to fire up a diesel in these conditions. So supposedly they chose these Cummins because they were able to operate in cold temperatures. Was it the, one of the ones that would run on gas for a minute? And then you could... Probably. So you basically pull this thing out, it lowers the uh, the compression ratio. Sure. And then you fire it up on gasoline. Okay. And once it's warm, you turn it off shut this valve, and increases and it the compression on, ratio back up, and then it runs on diesel after that. I'm sure that. it was... It had to have been something. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, even with glow plugs, when it's, yeah, no when it's zero, negative 20, it will not start. There's no way. I can just, just imagine these things cranking. Oh, I bet they turn over super slow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so another 12 years passed before explorers would find the cruiser again in 1958. An international geophysical research team, easy for me to say, found it buried beneath several feet of snow. The bamboo poles still jutted up proudly, and the researcher's bulldozer had the entrance quickly cleared. Sealed tight from the weather, the cruiser was basically a time capsule, just as the day it had been abandoned. Then, in 1962, polar geologists confirmed that the ice shelf that contained the snow cruiser and the Little America 3 base had broken into dozens of icebergs and flows of varying sizes. Oh no, so things floating away. <laughs> One of these contained the snow cruiser, but there was literally no way of knowing or tracking it. But in 1963, the next year, spotters on the USS Edisto saw the remains of a building jutting out from the side of an iceberg. The side of an iceberg. The captain steered closer and snapped a quick photo. Analysis later examined the photo and confirmed it was Little America 3, apparently torn in half from the splitting ice. And, in the top of the photo, above and to the left of the gutted building, two bamboo poles marking the snow cruiser's location still stood with a little red peeking out from the snow. <laughs> 22 years after being placed there. After that, no one has ever seen the snow cruiser again. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's at the bottom of the ocean. Exactly. So, Although it's, I'm I'm surprised that those tires didn't just keep it inflated. <laughs> it could have just floated, right? It's not like it weighed anything. The thing would have been about as successful as carrying Cubans to Miami through the ocean. There's it's there's no way. There's this thing serves absolutely. It's imagine this. It is exactly the same thing. The same mentality. Hey, we need to get out of here. This Castro guy sucks. Let's okay. build this machine. We'll put. 10-foot tires on it by yeah. three foot. All the air in the tires will help us float across the ocean. We don't even need tread because it's water. No good. Sank immediately. It's the same exact thing. Yeah, none of it is very good. But regardless, the snow cruiser remains kind of proof of America's ambition to explore and push beyond our comfort zone. And Chris, I have to tell you that Thomas, he definitely took the car. He certainly did. he didn't get very far, but he, he well, definitely. But the, it's about the journey, Chris. It it's is about the in, experience. in the spirit Come of on. it. In the spirit of it, it's pretty cool. I I would like to think that some of that technology, you know, made it in other things. You know that if you look at the, they maybe they took some of the drawing board or some of the electric motor yeah, hybrid hopefully. stuff 
and I don't know, just the whole wishful thinking <laughs> that we didn't just waste $3 million. Hopefully not. Yeah. All right. Well, before we go, let's talk about Petrol Box. They're our monthly subscription service specifically made for the automotive enthusiasts. Each month, they care for select items, including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, maybe even a snow cruiser, and they deliver it right there <laughs> the to your doorstep. A diecast snow cruiser? That'd be rad. <laughs> one one thirty-second scale of failure. <laughs> <laughs> the Petrol Box is not a failure, though. It is a very cool subscription. Uh, it costs as little as 20 bucks a month for the Petrobox Basic, while the Petrobox Premium gets you more gear for $39.95 a month. Check them out at mypetrolbox.com. Use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get an additional $6 off your first month's order. Awesome. Well, we'll see you guys on Monday. We are going to probably end up talking about the end of the world continuing and everything going wild. There's see, lots of we news need a out snow there. cruiser. We do. For what? <laughs> Self-sufficient. We would just put some better tires on it, maybe. Yeah, we'll see where it goes. I, I wonder if they could... Uh, redesign one in like a smaller scale yeah and see if they can get it to drive on some snow that'd be a fun I, exercise i think they probably have better <laughs> better better design better things now. to be doing <laughs> that yeah, all the factories are designing respirators right now <laughs> instead of cars all right guys we will see you on monday take care